I don't know if you've ever had conversations with people where as you enter into the conversation, all of a sudden the discussion turns to where they're kind of asking, they're laying out a problem before you, and in the way that they're, they're bringing the dialogue to you, they are asking you for your take on it, for your uh, discernment on what is taking place in their life, and then when you come and you bring and give them godly, biblical uh, advice to them, after you've explained everything to them and they're standing there or sitting there nodding their head, all of a sudden they throw in this little phrase at the end of your conversation that goes something like this. You say blah, 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 blah. And at the end of it they go, oh, okay, yeah, but. Right? Have you ever had the yeah, but? Yeah, uh, nobody really likes the yeah, but. Because what happens when you get the yeah, but is, is that yeah, I understand everything that you're telling me, and I probably would agree with you that it's probably maybe even true, and might be true for my life, but you don't understand where I'm coming from. You don't understand what's going on in my life. You don't understand anything. And by the way, if this is from God, it really probably doesn't apply to me anyway. And so we have the yeah, but that's going on. Now, the problem is, is that we run into that a lot. And it really, what it does is it takes whatever we're saying the advice that they're asking us to give to them, that advice now becomes nullified. It's no longer valid for their life, and they no longer really want to listen to what you have to say, and it really makes you feel like you've just wasted the last 10 minutes of your life explaining this to that person because they've just gone, yeah, but... And then they give you something else. You know, I hear that a lot. I hear it a lot in the church. And I'm going to use the, the word, you know this word, we use it here a lot, people who say they're, they're Christians. And let me explain that because we have come into our culture where there are a lot of people who will call themselves Christians just by the virtue that they go to church somewhere, they've read their Bible, maybe they grew up in a home that took them to church. But these people aren't what I would call professing disciples. Jesus said to go make disciples, not Christians. And so we want to have a church full of disciples. But Christian people have a tendency when you start to share the truth of God's word to them, they go, oh yeah, but. And, and, and there's a number of issues that they give the yeah, but to. Let me just give you a few of them. When it comes to purity, Jesus said that we need his help to help us bring our sexual cravings and lust in line with the original design of God. The yeah, but is that purity is archaic and outdated. And by the way, we live in a sexually free country now. And so if it feels good, just go ahead and do it. Don't pay attention to what God's word has to say. By the way, they say, isn't my happiness what God's concerned about? And I would say this, no, he doesn't care about your happiness. That might be shocking to some of you. What God cares about is your holiness. Nowhere did, did God say, be happy because I am happy. Be happy, you know that song, right? He didn't write that song, by the way. He said, be holy. And by the way, when you, when you step into following God and living a, high, a life of holiness... Now what happens in your life is you start to experience joy. 
Now, joy can, but not always. It can lead to happiness, but it doesn't have to. But when we're living in holiness, then we experience the joy of God. Now, let me just let me press on a little bit because there's other things. Um, Jesus said to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. You know, and we're to love our neighbors. But the yeah, but is you don't know my neighbor and you don't know the idiot that making my life miserable. So I really don't have to apply that to my life. I can see we're going to have a lot of people at the altar after church this morning. <laughs> Jesus said also this. He, he, he spoke about anger. He spoke about tithing or giving. He spoke about forgiveness and being merciful and letting your light shine in dark places. He says we need to be careful with the words that we speak because every word carries weight. He told us that when we go into prayer, we're not supposed to stand up and pray like we want everybody to notice us. We're supposed to use our prayer closet. But he also said, don't be like the Gentiles who fill their prayers with a bunch of meaningless words that don't carry any weight at all. He said that he wants us to be like him. Now, the problem is is that on all of these issues, there are people who always want to bring the yeah, but into this whole conversation. Because there's something different they're thinking that, they, that is uh, about their life than anybody else's life. They don't like being confront, confronted with the Word of God. And they like to say, yeah, but on a whole bunch of different things. But the problem with that is at first you're going to acknowledge the truth about God's Word, but then you're going to choose when you say, yeah, but you're going to choose to live in disobedience to God's Word. And it's not like it's accidental disobedience. It's a willful disobedience that you step into when you say, I know what God's word has to say, but it doesn't apply to my life. There's a whole thing going on there that is not really good for us. Matter of fact, Jesus said this, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So I normally don't try and cross the T and dot all the I's for you, because I really believe you're smart enough to get it. But this morning, I don't want to take any chances. What God is saying to us, what the Word of God says to us, is that in our love for God, we say, because I love you, I am going to do what you're asking me to do. I'm going to learn how to control my anger. I'm going to learn to control my tongue, and not just say the first thing that comes to my mind. I am going to give my money away because you're asking me to give it away. I'm going to forgive that person no matter what horrible thing they've done to me. I'm going to learn how to forgive that person. And we step into those things and we start to do that because we say, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. The other side of the coin is that if you don't obey God's commandments, Jesus said this, whoever does not love me will not keep my words. It's really cut and dry. It's really black and white. On this issue, your love for Jesus is demonstrated by the way you're willing to keep His commandments. If you're not willing, if you are willfully saying, I know this is true, but I want to do it my way rather than what God says, you're not loving God. Ouch, right? Because we all have those times in our life when we're going like, I know what God's Word says, but I think this is going to be more fun than obeying God. 
And we step in and we do stuff that later we go like, why did I do that? That was really stupid. I should have obeyed God. Now, that's the part where it's really great because God knows that, that we are in our frailty. We are weak. We give in to stuff. We're tempted. And a lot of times we don't do what we're supposed to do when we're tempted. And so um, we confess our sin and God loves us. Now listen, your sin won't separate you from the love of God. What can separate you from the love of God? But it certainly hampers your relationship with God. Anyway, the big question uh, that needs to be asked or answered by you is what part of God's word are you applying to the Yabba syndrome? Is there somewhere in God's word where you've read it recently or you know it because it keeps coming back, the Holy Spirit keeps reminding you of it, and you go, oh, I know, but I think sometimes what happens, though, is because (laughs) you're saying, like, I thought we were on a message about prayer, part six. (laughs) We are, by the way. And, and I think that we would all agree to some level or another that prayer is an important part of our life in Christ. As a disciple of Jesus, prayer needs to be this important part of it. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to explore what is known by everybody, the Lord's Prayer. And... It's one of those great things that Jesus gave to his disciples. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to stand together and we're going to do the Lord's Prayer together. And this can be on the screen. And, and I know some... Stand up. Be obedient. Stand up. Now, we're not going to start with the uh, pray then like this. We're going to start with our Father in heaven. But I want you to follow it on the screen because some of you have memorized it in the King James, and then you'll notice that there's not a part on there that some of you will add normally to it. But anyway, so here we go. Let's, let's say this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Awesome. Have a seat. Thank you. Now, we're going to walk through this prayer, but before we do, I want us to walk through a few other things and and notice some things. As we look at this prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples, I want you to remember that in Luke, in Luke's gospel, One of the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. That was a request saying, Jesus, we want you to teach us how to pray. And it it wasn't because they didn't know how to pray. They already had learned how to pray. They'd already learned some prayers but what they were doing is they were watching Jesus as he prayed because that's what they did is they, they kind of snuck up on Jesus while he was in a prayer time. And as he was praying, he, they came to Jesus and said, you know what, here's essentially what they're saying. They're going like, 
We know how to pray, but we don't know how to pray like you pray. You pray so totally different than anybody we've ever seen pray. We want you to teach us how to pray like you pray. It's not that they didn't know how. They already knew how to pray. And so, you know, they're coming together and they're asking Jesus for this prayer. And what Jesus says right at the beginning is, he says, when you pray, I want you to pray like this. Now, our inclination is that when we think about prayer, and you hear me, you've heard me talk for the last five weeks about prayer, somewhere along the line, you're probably going in your mind, at least you're saying, I already know how to pray. I pray. Yeah, I pray. You know, I'm, I'm really good at praying. And, um, you know, if we pressed you a little bit, I, you know, if someone came and said, let's be accountable about your prayer life, and they pressed really hard on you, if you could get past your moment of pride where you don't want to really be found out, where you're, you know, because we all have this little place of pride where we go, no, I pray. I pray a lot. It says to pray without ceasing. That's me. I pray all the time. I pray all day long. And you go like, really, dude? Really? You pray all the time? Like, do you close your eyes while you're praying and crash your car or something? Come on. So um, the fact is, is that if we were to really be honest and admit, be honest enough to admit it, we would say, I really don't pray enough. And my prayers really aren't that deep. And, but we would probably at the end of that go, you know, that's true. And then you know what we'd throw at the end of that? But. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but. After we would say, we, you know, you know, yeah, prayer needs to be a bigger part of my life, but. And then we might go, it's good enough. My prayer time is good enough. I connect with God, you know, once or twice, three times during the day. We always pray at mealtime. I pray when I get up in the morning. I pray before I go to bed at night. You know, and I throw out those little SOS prayers all day long. And, you know, but my prayer life, it's good enough. Well, I'm certainly glad that Jesus never took the avenue of good enough. Could you imagine if he was starting to create the world and he said, eh, it's good enough. Or if he was healing somebody, you know what? It's good enough. Or he went to feed the 5,000 and he, you know. Jesus never did anything where he thought this is good enough. Everything he did, he did intentionally with the thought this is great. Right? Do you know why? Because that's his character. That's his nature. He's a great God, so everything he does is great. Therefore, when he gives us this prayer, he didn't give us a prayer that was good enough. He gave us a prayer that was great. All right, you're not getting it. Let me help you out a little bit. So back before we moved to Lander, we lived on three-quarters of an acre. We had a swimming pool that was 40 feet long, 20 feet wide. It held, let me see if I can remember the exact number. 
980 liters of water. That's Canadian. I'm speaking Canadian, so you might want to translate that somehow. Okay. So anyway, it was great. Uh, but the problem with the pool is like it was 50 years old and it was falling in on itself and, you know, kids could die in there. But we didn't care. It <laughs> held water. Um, we also lived on a little bit of a hill and there was grass everywhere, orchards all around us. We had peach trees and cherry trees and all that. And so it was a lot of work for mom and dad to keep it up. And so one of the jobs that, uh, that we had was the kids had chores, not that they got paid for, chores just... Uh, the privilege of living in our house with us was what their reward was. Uh, they had chores, and so one of the chores was, for instance, mowing the lawn and doing weed trimming around the yard. And my oldest son, not to be named, but his brother Tyson's not here, and it's not his brother-in-law Cody, and he has no hair, but not to be named, If you don't know his name, ask his wife, her name is Heidi. Ask his wife, her name is Heidi. Uh, anyway, he was supposed to mow the lawn. And so he fired up the mower. I was in my office at the house working away. It was a Saturday. And he wanted to mow the lawn so he could ride his bike into town and go hang out with his friends. And so he mowed the lawn, and he got done, and he came in. He says, Dad, I'm done mowing the lawn can I go into town, ride my bike into town? He's 13, 14. I said, well, let's just go outside and take a look at your lawn mowing job. He said, okay. So we went out and kind of stood at the back of the house, and we looked down on all the grass that had just been mowed and the grass that had not been mowed. Because, you know, sometimes when you're in a hurry, you leave a strip about this wide about 200 yards long. And when the other stuff's moan, then you go like, wait a minute, that doesn't look so good. So anyway, I just stood there with him, and we're looking at it, and I said, so what kind of a job would you say you just did? 13, 14 years old, he goes, eh, it's good enough. I said, really? He goes, yep. I said, all right, so what would it take to make this good enough job great? And that's all I said, and I turned around and walked back into the, into the house. Next thing I know, I heard the mower fired up again. And those little strips of grass that got missed on the first cut got cleaned up. Then I heard the weed trimmer start up. And all of a sudden, all the grass on the sidewalks and around the trees everywhere else was all cleaned up. And when it got done, I was sitting in my office. He came in. He goes, hey, Dad, I just finished mowing the, the lawn, and I did a great job. <laughs> I said, awesome. Go have fun with your friends. Now, here's, here's why I'm telling you this is because that moment, he told me, I didn't realize what I was doing at the moment because I'm not that smart, but apparently that little talk helped shape the rest of his life because he has refused to settle for good enough for the rest of his life. Everything he puts his hand to, he wants to do it as great as he can because he knows he's doing it for Jesus and he serves a great God. And so everything he does, he wants it to be done great. He's not going to settle for good enough on anything. And the reason why I tell you that is because we have this prayer that Jesus has given to us and when he gave it to his disciples, it was great. But what has happened over the centuries, I think has happened in our churches, is we've taken this great model of prayer that Jesus has given to us, and we've turned it into 
good enough. It's good enough. And so the way we make it good enough is that we memorize this prayer, maybe when we're in kids' church, or maybe later on as we're adults, or maybe as you're recovering from other religions or whatever, but somebody's taught you this prayer along the line somewhere, and now you, you've turned around, you've memorized it, and you recite it back to God just as rote. So it's not really doing a lot of good. It's, it's a model prayer. And so what I want to do right now is I want to walk you through this model prayer and, and help you to maybe get a new understanding and a new desire. I'm, my prayer is simply this, that God creates a passion in your heart to take this model prayer and apply, apply it to the discipline prayer in your own life. So here we go. We're going to walk through it together. First off, hallowed be your name. That's adoration. You could say love, respect, reverence, or worship. And I want you to notice that when Jesus gave this, he didn't start off with a request. If you go back and you read in um, Revelations where uh, the apostle John has a vision of heaven and he's at the throne room of God, the people, the, the creatures in the throne room of God are worshiping God and they're, they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they are in worship of God the whole time. So when Jesus comes and he gives this model of prayer, it's adoration. He wants us to come to a place where we're worshiping God, where we have our hearts set on understanding and adoration and worship of the Almighty God. I love what the psalmist said in Psalms 103. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and forget not His benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like eagles. I mean, it continues to go on. Tony read this to us this morning, and it's amazing. But what he did here is this. As he blessed God's name, he then listed five benefits from blessing God's name. The benefits are forgiveness, healing, rescue, favor, and blessing. And they're all tied to a specific thing, a covenant with the name of God. We worship him because he is so blessed. So, number one, hallowed be your name is adoration. Number two, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's consecration. Consecration means that that you are taking and giving your life, you're setting it apart. Everything about your life, your body, your soul, your mind, your finances, your family, everything about you is set aside for God's exclusive use in your life. So you're, you're setting it aside. And so you, first of all, take a few minutes in worship, and then you come and you surrender, consecrate your life to God. And every day we should pray to God to move His kingdom Toward and through us, we need to surrender our entire life to his exclusive use like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. Consecration. Number three, give us this day our daily bread. That's supplication. 
After praying both of these above, now we're ready to tell God your needs. We worship Him first. We surrender to His will. Then we ask Him to fulfill that purpose in our our life. And Jesus kind of gave us the idea of what that looks like in John chapter 14. He said, whatever you ask in my name, get that, that's the underlying part, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I want you to understand that when you bring your supplications, your requests, that what you're saying is, God, I want you to do these things for me, but only so that you'll be glorified. Because I'm coming and I'm asking in your son's name. That's what Jesus said. Ask in my name. The Father's glorification is the thing that is of preeminence importance right there. Preeminent importance. Now, supplication is to express a need to God for food, clothing, bills, whatever it is. He provided, actually, for three million Israelites as they marched across the desert. So I'm pretty sure he's willing to supply your needs as well. But be very specific about what you're asking. Because if you're general, you might just get a general answer. So be specific. Number four, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's intercession. If you go and you read in the Old Testament, in the prophets, you'll read the book of Daniel. And Daniel was a great intercessor. In Daniel 9, he prayed something like 15 verses asking God to forgive Israel. And intercession, get this, intercession is where you're standing in the gap. You stand in the gap between an, an offended God and offensive people. A holy God and sinful people. We all have people who we know don't know Jesus. We all have friends. We all have family. We have people who are far from God. And what what Jesus is giving us here in this model is that we are to be intercessors. We are to stand in the gap for those people who don't know God because right now they're in line to receive all of God's wrath at Judgment Day. And so we intercede on their behalf asking the Holy Spirit to come and bring conviction to their life so they'll fall into the greatest gift, I believe, that the Holy Spirit gives somebody, and that's the need for repentance. And when they repent, then Jesus gives them salvation, and now they're right with a holy God. That's our job, is to intercede for them. Here's how Daniel did it in chapter 9. It says, Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking Him by prayer, and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps the covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keeps His commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and rules. We have not listened to Your servants, to the prophets who spoke in Your name, our kings, our princesses, our fathers, to all of the people of the land. You see, what he has done is he has said, this is a big deal, and our people have not started to confess their sin, so I'm going to intercede on their behalf, and I'm going to come and start making confession for all of God's people. We have been given that great opportunity to intercede for other people. And by the way, people are going to sin against you, 
And he says, you know, to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our sins as we forgive people who sin against us. When you start to intercede and pray for those people, it is almost impossible to remain bitter at someone for whom you are asking God to show mercy to. I'm going to explore forgiveness because in chapter or in verse 15, um, Jesus says a whole lot more about that. And so that's what we're going to do next week. I was going to go on to it this week, but I said, forget it. Let's just try and keep it short this week. Good luck. Um, Number five, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is protection. I want you to know that Satan's kingdom is real. He, 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 has, you know, he has a threefold purpose for what he does, to rob, kill, and destroy. And he doesn't care who you are. If you're not putting on the protection of God every day, you're, you're leaving yourself vulnerable for the work of the enemy to come at you. Matter of fact, I've, uh, I've taken the summer and I'm camping, camping out on three chapters in the Gospel of John. And it's... Uh, it's really been refreshing to me. But one of the things that I've really picked up on this is that in the 14th chapter, as um, Jesus is having this discussion with his disciples, in verse 30 he says, I will no longer talk much with you. And then he says this, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. You understand that? Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. But then he says he has no claim on me. And by the way, because Christ is in us and we are in Christ and the Father and it's that whole circular thing, you take a look at John chapter 14, 15, and 16 and see what Jesus has to say. It's, it's phenomenal. But I'm just going to tell you that if, if Satan had no claim on Jesus, when we come under the blood of Jesus, Satan has no claim on us. We just have to remind him of that. So when we ask for protection... We're asking God to come and and to protect us from what Satan wants to do. And by the way, the temptations we face originate in Satan and not God. Here's, Here's one of the things I want to remind you of. You've heard this before, but let me remind you of it from 1 Corinthians 10. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, here's the greatest thing that I can, how I can explain this to you, is that there isn't a single person in this room that doesn't face temptation of one kind or another every single day. And when you face that temptation and the enemy is coming and saying, you should lie, you should steal, you should lust, you should whatever, and you're tempted to step into whatever that sin is that's being laid before you, this word tells us that God has put a door up over here with a big sign on it that says, exit here. You can exit out of the temptation. You just have to be aware of what's going on, and you have to say, God, I'm really being tempted. Make that sign big and bright so I know where to go to get out of the temptation from what's going on. The problem is most of us see the exit sign. We're going like, I don't know. That looks like it's a narrow path. 
I'm liking the, the wide path that leads to destruction right now. And so I, I just want to encourage you, when you're being tempted, look for the exit that God's providing because he's always got one. So we want to pray, pray against attacks upon our family, upon our minds, our relationships. We need to bring every part of our life and relationships under the authority of God. And one of the best ways we do that in order to avoid in, in the, um, the pitfalls of temptation is, as James said in chapter 4, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your, ha- your hearts, you double-minded. That's an exit plan right there. The exit plan is to draw near to God. So the model that Jesus gave us for prayer then is adoration, a consecration, supplication, intercession, and protection. It's a prayer model that's centered on Jesus in the context of who he is, how he operates, how he sees us as his children, and what he wants us to do in order to conform form our life to his will. And he does it by empowering us to walk in total victory over our enemy as we get to know Jesus better. So this prayer model is given not to be used exactly as it is and not necessarily on every occasion, nor is it something that we need to memorize in order to recite back to God. But it is given to us to show us the kind of things that we need to pray about. So if you are struggling in knowing what to pray about, Jesus said, here's the model. You can fill up an hour praying through this model. Your prayer life can go from nothing to something very significant very quickly. Just follow the prayer model. But here is how we make it applicable to our daily situation. As long as as it's done with the focus that the Father may be glorified through the Son. Amen? As we move into our response to the Word of God this morning, I want to invite you to come to the front because I want you to add another aspect to this. And I think it's, it's built in there. And that's the whole thought of confession. Because as we started this talk off this morning, some of the issues that that were brought up and brought by God's word, they call us to step out in faith and obedience to him, and yet there are some of us who for a long time have been saying, yeah, but no. And that's direct disobedience against God. And so, like I said before, and I've said this a lot, the great gift of repentance has been given to us by God. So this morning, if you feel kind of like poked right here, I'm telling you, that's not from me. If you feel conviction, that's from the Holy Spirit. If you feel condemnation, that's from the enemy. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. Condemnation comes from the enemy. And so if you feel like God's calling you on something this morning, you need to confess your yeah, but I want you to make a twofold commitment to God. First, to forsake your lazy and blame-shifting self of yeah, but attitude. And the idea that your life uh, disciplines are good enough. My prayer life is good enough. My Bible reading is good enough. My faith sharing, it's all good enough. Because God has called you not to be good enough. He called you to be great. 
in Christ Jesus. So make, make that commitment. The second area is that where you know God is calling you to obedience, you've made the persistent excuse to disregard call, God's call to demonstrate your love to him. Today, demonstrate your love to God in obedience by coming and confession. After all, God desires obedience over sacrifice slash worship. As God calls you to come, confess, repent, and obey. Amen? Our Father, we thank you for your word because we know it's sharper than a two-edged sword. We know that it divides the soul from the spirit. We know that you call us to step into a life of obedience. And there are many times when we willfully say, no, thank you. And we do our own thing. And in those words, we're saying, I don't love you enough to obey you. Forgive us for those times. Forgive us for not interceding for other people. Forgive us for not showing adoration. Forgive us for not consecrating ourselves to you every day. Forgive us for not praying for protection on our families and ourselves. But most of all, God, forgive us for our yabbat attitudes because they are a a slap in your face of, of what you're calling us to do. And so I pray this morning for your people that as you call them, they would respond, they would confess, they would repent, and they would find forgiveness and move in obedience with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our elders are going to make their way to the front, so if you need someone to pray with you, they'll be up here. If you just want to pray by yourself, just come up and pray by yourself.